I, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. I mean, he demonstrated his love. I mean, if you ever doubt God's love, just keep remembering, Jesus died for you. There's nothing more he could do for you. He died for you, taking your sins on himself. He was buried and on the third day rose again to give us new life, a life worth living. That's our Savior. That's Jesus. He loves us so much. But do we love him? That's the question. How, how would we know if we love Jesus? Well, he gives, us, he gives us the answer to that, right? If you love me, keep my commands. And we find the passage today we're going to open where we're getting right to the Ten Commandments. We're right up against, right, getting ready to start, and we actually get a couple of them. And it's really his expression to us, God expressing to us, hey, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do these things. Now, obviously, if you don't love him, <laughs> then do whatever you want. Right? And that's what we find in our text today. Would you turn with me? We're in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 6. And right before he starts the Ten Commandments, he kind of again brings up something that seems so repetitive. But he wants to help them understand that God, he wants to, us to understand, wants Israel to understand, he loves us. Boy, I mean, if we miss that, we're missing the big picture in the Bible. Right? I mean, all the way from the garden, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Gospels to John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And guess what? That world, cosmos word, means everyone in the world. God so much loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus that whosoever believes in him would not have to perish, would not have to suffer the agony of hell, but have eternal life. Spend it with him, a quality of life and a long-lasting time with him forever and ever. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? Do you know him? Can you say that Jesus is not only a God, Jesus is not only the God, Jesus is my God. Jesus is my Savior. Not only the Savior for the world, he's the Savior for Randall. And you can just put your name in there. He's the Savior for you. If you simply trust him, and I pray that you know him today. Well, look at, the, look at our text today. It, it does have some of the commandments, but before that, it says in verse 6, I am the Lord thy God. Wow. So very, very quickly we find he wants to establish his identity. And he uses the word Lord in there. And Lord is the, the idea that we understand today as we have a landlord. If you're renting a place, if you're in some place that's not yours, but you pay some rent to be there, 
You pay it to your landlord because he owns the place. And guess what? God is saying to Israel, I own the place. This is my place. They're, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're getting the Ten Commandments. All this is coming down, and God said, I want you first to understand, <laughs> I'm going to give you this land, but really, it's my land. I created it. Therefore, I have the authority to tell you how you ought to live in that land. Look what he says. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Again, you're going to tell me about that? Again, you're going to go back to that? It's a big deal, right? They spent a lot of time in Egypt in pretty harsh conditions. And Jesus, and God says to them, I brought you out. And because I brought you out, I delivered you. I saved you. You really owe me. You really ought to, number one, recognize my goodness to you, and then secondly, recognize my ownership of you. And therefore, your behavior ought to reflect that. Look what he says. He says, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. He didn't just say, I brought you out of Egypt, because that's true, but he wanted to put the word land in there. Why? Because we've been talking about the promised land. And when you juxtapose those two things, you look at them and you go, okay, which one in Israel would you like? You like the land of Egypt or do you like the promised land? And they even had said that while they were in, you know, in the wilderness. They said, oh, we oh, to be back in Egypt. The food there was so good. Can you believe? Egypt, the harshness of it, and yet now looking at it compared to what God has for us. Christian, yes, this is about Israel, but the principles are there. Do you realize that when the world tries to tempt you with whatever they want to give you, that it's nothing in compared to what God wants to give you? The world wants to give you Egypt. They want to give you slavery. They want to give you something that binds you, that takes your energy, but gives you no satisfaction. And God says, but I got something much better. The Christian life, living with him, walking with God every day because he gives you that privilege as his child. Wow. Such a difference, and he definitely wants to show them the difference as he starts off before he even gets to the Ten Commandments. He said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt from that house of bondage, and he could easily have put in there into my house, to my family, to my taking care of you. Look at verse 7. He says, not only I am the Lord thy God, but now he stresses, thou shalt have none other gods before me. None other. He's saying, I am the Lord. There is no other Lord. There is no other one that is able to be what I am to you. He keeps talking to them about Egypt because he wants them to understand how good he is in contrast. 
When it says, thou shalt have none other gods, the, the term or the language uh, of other gods is a technical term, really, that reflects on pagan gods. And its closeness to the previous verse, it has to bring back their, in their memory all those gods of Egypt. And he says to them, I don't want you worshiping these gods that Egypt had. You remember those gods that, that, that tried to, uh, in comparison when we had the plagues and I was exposing those gods as being no gods? And he says, I don't want you to bow down to them. You should not have any of those before me. He says, I have the right to, to be your Lord and to lord it over your lives. Verse 8. Thou shalt make thee, not, shall not make thee any graven image. We talked about that before. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath or the waters beneath the earth. This commandment, the second commandment, does not prohibit artwork. Thank the Lord. It's not saying no artwork. What he is saying is don't make an idol. And call that God. Something that represents God and worshiping what represents God rather than worshiping God. Don't make an idol. He says any likeness of anything. He's talking about anything that's created in heaven above like birds. Can you imagine some people worshiping birds? Stars, moon. There's people that worship those things. Angels. Some Christians get a little bit carried away with angels. Just remember that angels only help us, and they do help us, but they only do it because God tells them to. God is the one that should get the credit for the work that angels do. He says, are in the earth beneath animals, yeah, and humans. Some people worship humans. Can you believe that? And then are in the waters beneath, yes, my favorite thing, fish. And there is fish gods, sea creatures. God says, don't worship those things. They've all been created by a creator. Worship the creator. Verse 9, he goes to the third one. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now this verse is sometimes tangled up and mixed up, but we need to take it in its context and see what's going on. He keeps going. Verse 9 is kind of an extension of verse 8 and verse 7. Shall not bow down thyself. It's the idea to take a knee, take a knee and honor something other than the one who deserves the honor and the glory. Worthy is the lamb, right? Not anything else. Don't bow the knee to anything else. Don't say that I will take a knee, give honor, but not only honor, I will serve. I will render service or literally, I will become a servant to something else. You see, when we have addictions that we become slaves to, 
what we're kind of do is taking a little bit away of the allegiance that we ought to have to God. And this thing that enslaves us, takes us away from him, steals our heart from him. And that's what really bothers him because it says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And yes, jealousy can be wrong, but in this case, it is holy. Why is it holy? Because the definition of being jealous means he is zealous to protect what belongs to him. He is zealous to protect what belongs to him. And Israel belongs to him. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you belong to him. And he is jealous for you. He wants you. And he will protect that. He says here, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. That's the terminology meaning the, the, the guilt of the fathers. Not only the guilt, but also the punishment. What kind, of, what kind of fathers is he talking about? He's talking about fathers that have some sort of guilt or pun, uh, worthy of punishment. Probably rebellion would be right in the heart of that. Rebellion and, and what God would interpret hating him. Hating him. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, look what it says there. It says, of them that hate me. That's pretty strong language. Right? When you hear the word hate, I hope you realize that's a pretty strong word. And he's saying here, as we look at the, you know, the English, which came from the Hebrew, we can find out what is the antecedent of them that hate me? What, what's the first thing you go back to? You try to find you uh, the subject that hates, and we find out it's the children. You see, children can be raised to hate God. You know that? And, and you can do it in a couple of different ways. One, you can just do it overtly. You can just basically say, there is no God or, there, you know, believe in evolution and, and give, you know, worship the devil. Parents could do that. It would be heinous and horrible. And it would produce children probably that hate God too. Or you can do it covertly. You can take them to church where you sing all these hymns and do all these things, and then you go and live like the devil the rest of the time. Hypocrisy of a parent <laughs> would definitely teach kids to hate God. There are a lot of kids that come out of an independent Baptist church that is either unloving or un insincere, unauthentic, is that the word? Christians, and a kid grows up and he says, man, as soon as I grow up and get old enough, I'm out of here, and I'm never going to go to a church ever again. Doesn't that break your heart to think that some kids think that way? Because we have not let them see that we love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And you see, that's the prerequisite for raising children who will be godly, is we as the parents first have to be the example we have to love the Lord with everything we have. We have to be sincere in our faith. So that our kids look and go, it's consistent. Why do my parents love God so much? And as they grow up, they answer that question. They realize how good God is and that he's good all the time. And they don't turn out like this talks about here. What is it saying? It's saying, yes, God will judge those who hate him. 
God does see that there is sometimes a link between a person's faith today and their parents' faith of yesterday. Man, what a responsibility we have as parents and grandparents that we want to pass down a godly heritage, a heritage that is one that says, I love God with all my heart. I belong to him and I want to please him with my life. And hopefully have your kids see that and then adopt that as their own. What a wonderful thing that is. And he says, but it can go the other way. (laughs) And see, some people would turn to Ezekiel 18.20 that says, The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. You see, there's no conflict. They're saying the same thing. We have, to, we have to be responsible for our own self. But also, sometimes as parents, we pass down a tradition or a heritage that is anything but godly. Of them that hate me. <laughs> Rebellious, God-hating. That kind of thing is caught as much as it's taught. It's seen in the house, and therefore, sometimes, that's all they know of how life ought to be. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, and showing mercy, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So many times in the New Testament, Jesus connects love and obedience. Love and obedience. One of my favorite places in 1 John chapter 5 that talks about the fact that God's commands for us will not be too hard for us if we love him. You see, when you love somebody, you want to do things that please them, right? And you don't want to do things that displeases them. Time for a marriage lesson. Counseling is difficult for me. It's always heavy on my heart. If I, I always adopt anybody's problems and, and I feel them and I carry them with me. It's difficult as a pastor to counsel. But I'll let you in on what 99% of marriage counseling comes out down to. One spouse is doing things that the other spouse doesn't like. <laughs> and the other spouse who is feeling that way retaliates. And does things the other spouse doesn't like. Like calling names, demeaning them, not honoring them when they ought to. I can't tell you how much a difference it would make if simply couples just took into consideration that she told you she doesn't like that. Quit doing it. Because when you do it, it says, I don't love you. Right? Because when you know somebody doesn't like something and you keep doing it, it makes you question their commitment to you and their love for you. You can fix it. Just quit doing that. And guess what? Also, if they say, I really like this, do that. Then you not only dig yourself out of the hole, you're starting building a a good little place for yourself. All right, enough of that. 
but it applies to marriage, but it also applies to our relationship with God. God is saying, these Ten Commandments, these are not just things I made up. These are things I really, really like you to do. It's good for you, but it also pleases God. And don't we really want to please God? If we love him, we do. So the question is, do we love God? Comes down to it. I started meddling and I get lost in my notes. Hmm. He says he shows mercy to thousands. That word mercy there is kindness, gentleness, Who does he show it to? To them that love me and keep my commandments. He's talking about those who demonstrate their love for him and their affection for him by observing God's desires, his way, not some other way. Verse 11, thou shalt not take the the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Boy, I tell you, God must really not like a lot of conversation on this earth. Oh, my goodness. I mean, anywhere you go in public, and probably at some of your workplaces, you hear plenty of taking the Lord's name in vain. This idea of taking it in vain means to take the Lord's name and to attach it to something empty or worthless, something not good, not profitable. (laughs) What is that? Well, sometimes it can be profanity. Scripturally, it also talks about something to do with magic or chance. It means to use God's name flippantly or falsely, falsely accusing God of a, or putting the blame on him for something. Has the idea of taking an oath or promise that you don't plan on keeping and you're using his name. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, it says, who takes his name in vain. In other words, simply put, you're not going to get away with it. There's a lot of people going to have to answer for that. If this verse is true, there's going to be a lot of people that's going to have to answer for the way they took the Lord's name in vain. Verse 12, we get to the Sabbath day, and a lot of people are mixed up about the Sabbath. There's whole groups of people, uh, churches, that, that have problems understanding what the Sabbath day is and what it means to us as believers today. Here we find God is talking to uh, Moses, using Moses to talk to whom? Who, who, who is the context here? Right? Israel, right? Not the church as we know it. Not this church or the New Testament church. This is Israel. This is between God Almighty and Israel. And what does he say? And keep that in mind as we go. He says, the Sabbath day, he said, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. The Sabbath was going to be a sign between God and Israel as a nation. 
You say, Pastor, I don't, where do you get all that from? Well, you can find it, I mean, that's exactly the words you find in Exodus 31, 12. That this is a sign between two parties, God and Israel. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I'm not God. And I'm pretty sure I'm not Israel. Therefore, it really doesn't directly apply to me. Now, the principles there will be some of the things that we can apply, but the Sabbath is a sign between God and Israel as a nation. Exodus 31, 12, if you want to look that up. And he says, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God has commanded you. Who did he command? Who's the you he's talking about? Context is Israel. Israel he's talking to. Then he says, six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. <laughs> Evidently, you know, we have to update this because it sounds like they're trying to do a four-day four work week these days. But it's not saying you can have, can't have that. It's just simply saying you have six days to, to pick and do your work on. And then he wants you to take the last day or he wants Israel to take that last day. I like what it says. It says, labor and do thy work. I'm thinking, isn't labor and work the same thing? Well, actually, labor is probably the best word for that Hebrew word. But to do all thy work might be better business. Do your business. Whatever business you have to conduct, right? And then it's not talking about physical labor as much as it's talking about doing things that you're working on your own business or you're what, what, uh, either taking care of what you own or trying to possess more things. Six days I shall labor and do thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. The Sabbath of the Lord. This is something God has created, the Sabbath. And it reflects back, and it's this terminology reflecting back to creation. Six days he created the whole world. Seventh day, he sanctified it, called it the Sabbath, the seventh day. It says, in it thou shalt not do any work. There's that word for work again. It's really business. You shouldn't do any business. Because some people could get on their cell phone, you know, and you could be doing business on your phone. And really, technically, I guess, very minimal labor involved in raising a phone up to your ear. Right? I mean, because when you measure work in foot pounds, right? Uh, a mass through a distance equals work. And that's not much mass. But he says, business. Don't do any business on the Sabbath. You shouldn't do any business, or your son shouldn't do it because you might try to get him to do it by proxy, right? Your son, or your daughter, or your manservant, or your ox, any of your animals. Or even a stranger, you might get somebody to do it. Crack me up, there's a group of people who, who hold to not believing that any of the modern conveniences today. And they were in the close surroundings of the last church I was at. And they didn't believe in driving cars, but they were sure fine with hiring people to drive them in the cars. And they didn't believe in having any chrome on their cars, 
but it's okay if you had chrome on their cars and you had to take them somewhere. And I'm like, that's kind of weird. And God knows how we are. We're kind of like that. We rationalize, we work around the rules. And he says, basically, nobody needs to be doing any business on the Sabbath. That's associated with Israel. He says, I'm not going to get in. I don't want any slippery slope here. I don't want any exemptions of anybody. Just simply, Israel needs to not do any business on the Sabbath. And why is he going to do that? Look at verse 15. (coughs) Verse 15. And remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt. Oh, we're bookending these, these, these commands with going back to remember the land of Egypt. What was it like for you? Well, you were in slavery there. You were a servant in the land of Egypt. That thou, that the Lord thy God brought you out. I, I rescued for you from that. I got you out of that. Basically working seven days a week. Making bricks with no straw. All those horrible things of Egypt. I took you out of there. It says, and the Lord thy God brought thee out through a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I love that. Boy, you go back and read. All the way through the whole process of them getting out. Look back and read in Exodus. And it keeps saying that God says, it's going to take my mighty hand to get you out of here. No one was going to get Israel out of Egypt except God. God was the only power that was able to get them out. Because he had the mighty hand. And he was able to reach into Egypt and pull Israel out. Wow. In a way that should have been in the memory, just pressed into the memory of every person in Israel. He says, that I brought you out of the land of Egypt and that the Lord thy God brought thee out through a mighty hand, outstretched arm. Therefore... (laughs) with all this stuff wrapped together, put a bow on it. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee, commanded who? Israel, those people who came out of Egypt. (laughs) I commanded thee to keep what? Keep the Sabbath. You see, it's clear here, this has nothing to do with the church today. It's a good principle. I think it would be great if every person would take a day off and just remember that we have Jehovah Jireh, who is the provider of all things. Right? But we need to be careful that if someone works on the seventh day, the Sabbath, that we don't judge them because it's not really for the church. You say, Pastor, you can't say that because the the Ten Commandments, they reply to us today. Well, you know, every one of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for this one. Well, that's pretty convincing. But wait a minute. That's not enough. That's, a, that's an argument from absence, which is one of the weakest arguments there are. Okay, Colossians 2.16. The Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians and says... Do not let anyone judge you in respect to the Sabbath day. I mean, hey, can you get any clearer of that? What a wonderful God we have. 
who loved Israel, who loves Israel, who will love Israel for all eternity. How do I know that? Because the gates in New Jerusalem have the names of the tribes, the 12 gates, the 12 tribes for all eternity. Marked it down and says, hey, Israel, I love, even though sometimes they don't love me back. God loves them. But you know what else? God loves the church. How do I know that? Because Jesus says that the church is his bride. And you're not going to find a better husband than Jesus. Oh, how he loves us. And all he asks us to do is do things that please him. Do things his way. Do things that he likes. You say, well, I'm not sure, you know, what my husband likes. Well, yeah, when you got people like me that are real picky, it's tough. But God has made it plain what he likes and what he doesn't like. Right? I mean, we know what God likes. He likes it when we worship him and him only. He likes us when we we deal with truth. He likes us when we, we love his people. He likes it when we get into his word and we hold it in high esteem. If you have your notes, you can take that out. I'd like to fill in some blanks here and try to make some application about God's commands. I think we can see in God's commands that he's a jealous God. In other words, he's zealous to protect what is his. What's God interested in? I think God is very interested in our loyalty. Wouldn't you agree? Man, if we miss that, we miss the whole ball of wax. He's interested in our loyalty. He's interested in our love. Absolutely. He loves us. Do we love him? And then thirdly, God is interested in our labor. He gets right in the middle of the things that are important to us because he knows that we can sometimes go off the deep end. What about our loyalty? Well, our loyalty to God. Oh, look at that dog. If it was black, it almost looked like Phoebe. That that tongue is what got me. (laughs) Our loyalty to God is, number one, expected. God expects us to be loyal. Why? Because he's done so much for us and Israel. He's done so much for us, he would expect our loyalty. Secondly, our loyalty is also to be exclusive. No other gods before him. He doesn't want to be one of many. He wants to be have an exclusive relationship with us. And then I made up a word, I think. It didn't come up on my uh, spell check, so it might be a word. Exceptionless. How about that? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But he basically... I know we think, hey, you know, well, angels are, you know, they're, they're holy, right? Holy angels, so we can worship them, can't we? Uh, no. No other 
none other, whether they be in heaven, whether they be on earth, or they be in the water. None, no exceptions. Our loyalty ought not to have to be questioned. It ought to be very clear that we are loyal to God, but also he wants our love. God desires our love. Can you imagine how God must feel when we do the things he hates? Oh, these people that I've loved and given so much to, and they say they love me. In fact, on on Sunday mornings, they sing about their love for me. (laughs) And then on Monday, they act like they don't even know me and what I desire. Love that does not disobey. That does not disobey. I was told by someone one time that I should probably never use a, the idea of diso, disobey or disobedience. That's too negative. I'm here to tell you, we do disobey. And when we do, God doesn't like it. Therefore, we need to repent. And we are assured by God's word that he will forgive us. There's something you've done in the past, something that you know that God does not like. Why not confess it? Why not call it what God calls it? Why not say, okay, I didn't only disobey, I sinned. I sinned against God. I did the opposite of loving him. I did what those who hate him do. That's not good. Love that does not disobey. Love that does not detest. (laughs) That does not look like we hate God. Oh, wouldn't that be the most horrible thing in the world if God said, hey, you're acting like you hate me. Or I think you might hate me. (laughs) Ooh, I don't want to be in that crowd. Thirdly, love that does not denigrate. Which means we don't make light of him. We don't tear, uh, speak lowly of him. We don't use his name in vain. Thirdly, God is interested in not only our loyalty and our love, but our labor. Our labor. I truly believe that there's a way to do business that God likes, and there's a way to do business that God doesn't like. I think we need to labor with reverence. With reverence. He says, keep the Sabbath day and sanctify it. It's the idea of realizing that, hey, no matter what I do, if God is not willing to bless it, it won't work. I only succeed when God makes me succeed. I owe everything I have to God. Yes, if God did not give me the strength, I could not do it. If he did not give me the skills, I could not do it. If God did not give me the energy, I wouldn't be able to do it. Reverence giving God the credit. Secondly, we labor with rest. Realizing rest is important. God took the big step in saying, on the seventh day, he rested. Do you think God really needed the rest? No, really. Then why did he do it? Like any good parent, he was setting the example. Because we as human beings absolutely need our rest. Many bad decisions are made when people are lacking the rest they need. They do stupid things. Some things we do, we have to redo anyway. 
when we need our rest. Why not get the rest we need? And then thirdly, we labor with remembrance. We labor with remembrance. Remembering a time when we were perhaps laboring for a bad master or a bad boss or somebody, something that was not giving us really our due. And God said, yeah, I took you out of the land of Egypt. And now I'm putting you in the promised land where you're going to get just the opposite. In, in Egypt, they worked so hard and they got nothing for it. Nothing. Egypt soaked them, took all their skills and energy and all their work. But in the promised land, they go in there and they get to harvest what they didn't even plant. It was there for them. God provided for them. God provides for us. Just remember that everything we have comes from God. All the good things come from God. I like this uh, quote that I kind of uh, manipulated a little bit of several people's. (laughs) The law was not given to achieve salvation, which asks the question, then why was it given? It was given, (laughs) why? It was how Israel could demonstrate their loyalty to the God they said they believed in. You see, when we look at the Ten Commandments, They inform us of how we can demonstrate our love for him. 